0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. As we do an overview of Proverbs 3, verses 1-12. through 12. As I said, we introduced that last week. Uh, during the summer, we sometimes do a few things different, so we will continue with that this summer. Going back to basics, Christian disciplines, What are the Christian disciplines? We all need a reminder on those. We all do need to be encouraged. And also, maybe for some of you, those need to be identified. What are the Christian disciplines? What do I mean by that? Basic fundamentals that should be a regular practice in your Christian life as you walk obediently with the Lord and want to grow in Him. And we'll be talking about those Christian disciplines as well as other fundamentals of the faith we'll also be addressing throughout the summer. Uh, The first discipline of the Christian life I wanted to talk about is giving. So this is giving part two, really. So that's what the sermon is about today, giving. And specifically, uh uh-oh, yes, money. I mean, you're going to talk about money from the pulpit in public, Pastor Cliff? Yes. Are you one of those prosperity teachers? No. Uh, Money, yeah, it's awkward, isn't it? It's funny, funny money. Uh, Everybody has their own personal view of money, and some people think other people's views of money is weird. Uh, it is it is awkward to talk about money and finances, but you have to talk about it. We have to talk about it as a church. I don't talk about it as op- often. We don't talk about money much. We deal with money giving finance usually as it intersects with a book of the Bible as we're preaching through expositorily one book of the Bible from the New Testament at a time. Currently, we've been in the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of Luke does talk about money and finance. Jesus does, and we hit it in its context and usually don't elaborate on it. But uh, there are times where it's necessary that God's people as a local church, as a church family, we've got to talk about money. Um, And one of the other reasons we need to talk about money is it's all over the Bible from Genesis to Revelation if not virtually in almost every book of the Bible, talks about either money, possessions, giving, your attitude related to it, and what God's expectation is of us regarding it. No human being can live without income. Every one of us does. It's a universal truth. There are principles that undergird that from God's point of view. Hence, we need to know what he has to say about income, giving, surviving, exchange of goods and services, and all that's under that Umbrella, and the Bible is the authoritative source on that. The Bible is the greatest economics book ever written because it's from God's point of view. He is the authority. God created money, He created income. He is the master. He knows best. Uh, that's where we need to go to find out what He thinks about all of this. It's part of the Christian life, it's rudimentary, it is basic, it's fundamental. This was in, just drilled in my brain as a young 19 year old when I got saved. And I just look back and thank God all these years later. Of, Regarding the disciplines of the Christian life and those who faithfully mentored me, discipled me, uh, faithful ministers, godly examples. uh, I think of great churches that I went to early on, Grace Community Church and the pastors and elders there and uh, the master's college, master's seminary and other people that God brought into my life. Especially in the formative years as a new Christian teaching me, what are the legitimate biblical uh, Christian disciplines? And they all universally said that giving is one of those. Giving, giving to God as a Christian. And the principles are clear. So from early on in my Christian life, this was just ingrained in my mind. I I welcomed what scripture had to say. I was never one of those that, oh, I'm offended by that Bible verse. That hurt my feelings. It's, oh, wow, I didn't know that was in the Bible. That's challenging. That's conveying. I need to change the way I think. And I need to conform it into how God thinks, the Bible. So that needs to be our attitude regarding Scripture. Not offended by what God says, but welcome what God says in his word. And have our thinking and our words and our attitudes and our living reflect what God says in his word. That needs to be true with money and giving. So I just I look back and I think, thank you, Lord, for putting these people in my life. It, it was established early on and for decades now. Uh, my attitude towards giving is a fundamental Christian discipline, just as much as uh, praying to God devotionally, reading my Bible, going to church, using my spiritual gifts, serving in the church. This is what I mean by basic fundamental Christian disciplines. Giving is one of those. It needs to be. I'm saying all this because... This doesn't come uh, naturally in your thinking. This doesn't come by intuition. This is not common sense. There are churches that don't even teach this idea. Some churches don't talk about money giving biblical principles at all. Other churches, unfortunately, teach about money out of context and abuse the biblical principles there. you got the health and wealth prosperity gospel would be one example, and then you've got the other extreme on the other end. And I don't know everybody's background, but I'm just going back to ground zero, assuming we need to talk from the very beginning, absolute fundamental basics of what God thinks about giving. That is the goal with these two sermons together. If you weren't here last week and didn't hear uh, sermon number one from last week, I encourage you, you need to do that because it it laid the foundation for today. Today we're just going to jump right in to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, It was written in Hebrew by Solomon about 1,000 B.C. As he was moved by the Spirit of God, so it is inspired text. It is perfect. It is without error. It's the very thoughts of God on this topic. I'm talking about giving, yet I'm reading 1 through 12 because uh, verse 9 of Proverbs 3 talks about giving as well as verse 10. And that's where I'm going to stop, and I'm going to focus and dig down deep on that verse and its implications to us. But I want to read it in context because that's how you need to study the Bible. That's why I'm just walking through the whole passage together quickly because we can't just pick and choose verses and pull them out of context because we are then prone to distorting what God is really saying about any given topic. And that is oh so true regarding money. That's done too often where people just pull a verse out of context on money or giving or whatever, manipulate its meaning. And that can be very destructive or misleading. We don't want to do that. So we want to see what God had to say about giving and money in the context of this given passage. And so on Proverbs 3, 1 through 12, it's a statement from Solomon. It's a unit. It goes together, all 12 verses in your English Bible. The way he broke it up, because it is poetry, it's in couplets. So the two verses go together. So verses 1 and 2 is the overall guiding theme uh, that governs verses 3 through 12, and then 3 and 4 go together, 5 and 6 go together, 7 and 8 go together, 9 and 10 go together, and 11 and 12 thematically, just in case you're taking notes, need to know the big picture. Also thematically, verses 1 through 4 go together, that's more general, general principles and attitudes you should have towards God, and then verses 5 through 12 are specific commands in light of that general attitude. Taken together, all verse uh, 12 verses Really, Solomon is teaching about a biblical worldview, a worldview, an entire lifestyle and mentality that you should have all taken together. So it's a composite of many things integrated together, Um, the general worldview we need to have in terms of how we live before God and then also the specific commands that he gives here. So this passage is talking about not an isolated topic or one specific command. It's really a comprehensive worldview, life view of how we should live our life before God, basically in every area of life. And it starts with, do we know God or not on a personal level, spiritually? That's where it starts. So this passage actually is directed to believers. If you're not a believer today, this doesn't directly apply to you. You need to get saved. You need to repent and believe, bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, and admit to him that you are sinful under his wrath, and you need his mercy. That he showed to you by dying on the cross as he absorbed the wrath of the Father on your behalf. Cry out to the Lord Jesus, ask him to save you, that you might be born again and adopted into his family, so that you can become a child of God because you believe that Jesus is Lord, the only way to heaven, and that you can't save yourself. You are saved only by his grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, the God man. That's how you become a Christian, that's how you become a believer. You do that and you're born into the family of God, then this is for you because you're a child of God. And this proverb was written to children of God, sons of God and daughters of God. Look at verse 1 and verse 12. My son, do not let my son, my son. This is a godly man, godly parents. Really, it's coming from God Almighty through Solomon to believing parents to their children in a believing home. That's the context. Solomon is king of Israel. He is a believer. He loves Yahweh. Yahweh loves him. This is a treasure to families, a treasure to believing parents, a treasure to believing dads as to how they should train their children with a biblical, comprehensive worldview of how they should view all of life from general principles down to the specifics and the mundane things of life that we deal with every day, including money, income, resources, revenue. It's comprehensive, but it is for believing homes, and it's for believing children. He says, my son, do not forget my teaching. So this is a, a believing father talking to his children. And this applies to God talking to us. If we're, We are children of God if we know God. So this applies to us. Son is a generic term in verse 1. Bain, the Hebrew word. It, it includes women. It's really believing daughters and believing sons. My son, so this is for you. Do not forget my teaching. That's a command. And then at verse 12, as he concludes this, Little paragraph. He says, For whom the Lord Yahweh loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son or the daughter in whom he delights and whom he loves. So there's the emphasis on the personal relationship. So if you're a believer, this passage is for you. If you're a believer, this should be a part of your worldview on a regular basis. You should be going back to Proverbs 3, 1 through 12. Routinely reminding yourself, what does God expect of me? How should I think? What are my attitudes? What are, how should I live my life? This is good. This is comprehensive. It's fully orbed. I've found myself going back to it time and time again over 30 years. So this is for believers. Uh, so let's just walk through it. You've got your hand out there. Uh, as we go through, it's got commands, like I said. There are prerequisites. You've got to know God for this to apply to you. And if you know God, then you need to obey God because God is your Lord. He's your Savior. He's your King. He's your Judge. He's your Creator. He's your Sovereign. And as believers, we bow the knee. We obey. That's basic to being a Christian, to being a believer. We're called to obey. And so this passage is full of commands. They're from God, and he expects his children to obey without hesitation, without excuse. Implement these. Integrate these into your life. So they become a lifestyle, a habit, a pattern, a routine, a discipline, second nature. This is just fundamental to the Christian life. How we think, how we act, how we talk. That's the idea. And it's got several commands. And with the commands that are not options or suggestions, commands that we're going to be held accountable for, commands that we will stand before the judgment throne of Jesus Christ, according to 2 Corinthians, and by which we will be judged and evaluated... Every believer has to face the judgment seat of Christ. That's what the Bible says. What's the judgment based on? Well, it's objective. There's an objective standard it's the commands of God, it's the revealed commands of God. These are revealed commands of God. So, this is a part of our standard of by which we live because we'll be held accountable for it. But not only does it have commands and imperatives and obligations, it's got blessings. So let me just point out the blessings for you. If you've got a pen or a pencil, you want to write those down. just want to give you the big picture before I go into verse 9 and 10. Uh, blessings promised in this passage if you live a life that is obedient to God. Uh, verse 2, God promises you length of days or years of life. And then in the notes there in the introduction, I call that quantity of life and shalom. Shalom is peace. Primarily, it's internal peace internal peace. It's a supernatural peace. You can't get it. If you're not an unbeliever, you can't have shalom in your heart. It's at the deepest level of your being. It comes from God. It's a supernatural gift from God that he gives only to his children. And you can only know the fullness of it when, as a children, you are obeying God and walking in obedience. We would say from the New Testament, walking in the Spirit. Then you could know, literally, the peace of God, the supernatural peace of God from God Almighty that covers you, that governs you, that protects you, that rules your heart from the inside. It's internal. That's shalom. Peace. That's the promise of God. And there, the New Testament talks about it. As you're walking in the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. That's what this is. A supernatural peace that comes from God. And it it basically informs all of your capacities as a human being. When you have shalom, the peace of God, because you're walking in obedience, then you have that supernatural peace. It is guiding and covering and protecting your thought life, your heart life, which is your emotions. So your thinking and your emotions are protected, guided by the shalom, the peace of God. What does this kind of Christian look like or believer? This kind of person is just a person who is at rest. When you talk with them, you can't see it necessarily from the outside, but when you talk to them or you scratch the surface or you probe a little bit or have a conversation, it is readily apparent. They are at peace with God. They are not full of angst. They are not driven by the worries of the world. They are not overwhelmed by the prospects of the future and of life and what tomorrow brings. They are at rest. This is internal peace. That's their temperament. It's not necessarily 24-7, but it is as you walk in obedience to God. So for some for a lot of us, it, it comes and it goes. But you can sense it when it's there. When it is there, that's the work of the Holy Spirit living in your heart with his truth giving you that internal shalom peace. It's the great it's one of the greatest treasures you can have on this earth. It's more valuable than money internal peace it, it's ta- we're talking about security you smile at the future you're not overwhelmed by regrets and guilt from the past you're at ease peace from God because of your relationship with Jesus Christ it's real you're solid in that this governs you as a person it's evident in the way you talk the way you conduct yourself and when it slips away it can very easily, Jesus told us that by the worries of the world. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, Calm calm down, it's okay. Calm down. Be deliberate in your thinking. Go to the Father. He knows your needs. He knows what you need before you ask Him. Don't be overwhelmed by the basic necessities of life, like food and what you're going to eat or what's going to be over your head or where you're going to live. The Father knows you need those. Rest in Him. That will give you shalom, supernatural peace. Rest in Him. That's a command. It's not an option. Nothing else can give you this peace. Occultic practices and weird Eastern meditation can't give you this kind of peace. Medication cannot give you this peace. Alcohol can't give you this peace. Those are all uh, pseudo ways of dealing with it. This is a supernatural gift from God. Shalom. Uh, Spending time on that because that's laying the foundation here. That's in verse 2. My son, or my daughter... The one who knows me, who knows Yahweh. For us, it's who knows Jesus Christ, who's a born-again, Bible-believing Christian, who's been redeemed and saved. Child of God, been adopted in the family of God. My son, do not forget my teaching, Torah. That's the word of God. That's divine revelation. But let your heart uh, keep my commandments. The word heart there is used three times. Heart, verse 1, heart, verse 3, and heart, verse 4, internal. That's the Christian life. The Christian life primarily is not an external thing. It's an internal thing. You must be born again by the spirit, which happens on the inside. It's internal. It starts there. It's an internal relationship with God, your creator, who is spirit. It can't be physical because he is spirit. And we come to know him internally through our mind, through truth, through our conscience, through our soul, through the spirit that lives in us. The word heart there in the Old Testament used hundreds of times lev lev lev. that's the word for heart do not think of the physical human organ heart that beats and that's not what it's talking about do not think primarily the emotions either heart in the old testament for the hebrew heart was not just the emotions when you see the word heart in your old testament just think internal person internal person and it is all-inclusive Sometimes it refers to your thinking capacity, your rational capacity, how you think as a man thinks in his lev, in his heart, so is as you think. So it's not just emotions. Does it include emotions? Yes. But it's all that constitutes you on the inside as a human being. That's what lev is, the internal person, the internal man, the internal woman. The internal you that passes on to either heaven or hell when you die and leave this physical body. That's the lev, the heart. Very important. So, child of God, don't forget my teaching. Don't forget scripture. Don't forget God's revelation. But let your heart, your internal mind, heart, conscience, desires, everything about you on the inside keep God's commandments. And if you do, here's that first promise, for length of days and years of life, And peace, they will add to you. God is making a promise here. This isn't just a principle or an idea. This is a promise, literally, that God is giving. God is going to stay true to his word, too. So that's the first promise. It's quantity of life and shalom, peace that goes with it. You mean if I obey God and walk in obedience, that uh, God is going to give me a quantity of life? He's going to add to the length of my days and the years of my life? You mean I'm going to live longer if I obey God? That's what it says. How else are you going to interpret it? That's what it says. Well, wait, Pastor Cliff, are you one of those prosperity teachers? No. I'm not a health and wealth prosperity teacher. But this is what God says. And he will work it out. And you could read the rest of the Proverbs where he gives us the contrast to more fully understand that concept. It's not saying that if you obey God and do everything he says, you're guaranteed to live to age 77. That is not what it's saying. But what it is saying is if you live a life of obedience, trusting God, walking with your God closely, he's going to add and give you the fullness of the length of days. In other words, your life is not going to be short-circuited because of your sinful actions and behaviors, which happens to sinners all the time, who get caught up and stumble over snares through compromise in their life, and their life is snuffed short because of stupidity, compromise, sin, dumb decisions, deception. That's what it means. Literally, their life is cut short. Because of living like the world, living in the world. And God promises right here to the believer, it doesn't have to be that way with you. I will give you fullness of life. That's what it means. It doesn't mean you're going to get to live as long as you want to, but you will have fullness of life at God's discretion. So there's the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity involved in that verse. So that's the first promise, quantity of life. Second one, um, The second promise there is in verses 3 and 4. The promise there is that you will find, if you obey God and do what he says, you will find favor and good repute with God and with men. So point number one there is the promise is you'll have character in life, godly character in life, good character, admirable character in life in terms of your reputation, both with God and with men. Now, good reputation with men, humanity needs a qualifier. It's men who matter. It's humans that matter. It's humans that gauge you and judge you based on a proper standard. Because there will be plenty of people that hate you. There are probably people who hate you right now and think your reputation stinks. And mine. So there is a context to all of what mean, all these phrases and promises mean. So verses 3 and 4. Uh, Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Kindness and truth, those are attributes of God. Kindness um, refers to grace, mercy, mercy. Kindness, kind of more the emphasis there is how you treat people, how you talk to people, how you deal with people. And then beautifully coupled with truth, they go together, two sides of the same coin. Phrases used together throughout the Old Testament, by the way, they go together. Truth and mercy, truth and kindness. So when you're talking to somebody, an unbeliever, a critic, sharing the gospel, you need to do it with truth and mercy, right? It's not just give them the truth two by four between the forehead. No, it's doing it with kindness, grace, and mercy. And it's a balance. And it takes spiritual maturity to do that. And that, But that's how God expects us to live life. And some people are more difficult to be merciful towards and gracious than others. Yes? Yes. Uh, but this is the Christian ethic, the believing ethic. And this is what God expects of us. Jesus modeled this for us perfectly Paul's a good example, um, and God is the perfect model. So do not, believer, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Live that balanced life in terms of your ethic, not just the truth that you hold to in an uncompromising way, but how you relate it to other people and talk about it and live it out before them. The beautiful, godly balance to help you. He says, write them, truth and kindness, on the tablet of your heart. Make it internal. Don't forget it. Make it a priority. Oh, before that, bind them around your neck. That means uh, let it show. Let it show. Wear it like jewelry. When you put on jewelry this morning, ladies, and I guess, yeah, men wear jewelry. I've got a ring. Um, When you put on jewelry, you put it on for a reason. And one of the things, whether you thought about it consciously or not, is you wanted people to see it. And and you chose accordingly. Oh, I think I'm going to wear my long, dangly, sparkly ones today. Because bottom line, you're making a statement. People are going to read you and that you want them to see it and make an interpretation and You're saying something. You're making a statement. That's what he's saying. The statement you should make when people see you, the first thing they should be thinking is they can see like jewelry externally to you. What they're saying is not uh, worldliness or compromise. They're seeing the internal beautiful spirit that you have that reflects the very nature of God, and that is kindness and truth. You're wearing it like a necklace. It just oozes from you. That's who you are. That's your temperament. That's your character. That's your personality. That's your... That's who you are on a regular basis. Um, you do that on a regular basis, living that way. Another promise is you will find favor and a good repute in the sight of God and of men. You will have you will establish and begin to establish a solid godly reputation. With God, you'll have His approval, and with people. What a great promise! Number five. Uh, actually, verses 5 and 6, which takes us to point number 2 regarding your attitude towards God. The promise there is that you'll have clarity and direction in life. Or I just say, God will give you help in life. Do you want help in life? I do. Regarding the future, we all need it, don't we? We are short-sighted. We can't see very far. We can't see tomorrow. We can't see the next hour. We worry about that. We fret about it. We lose sleep about it. You probably lost sleep this week about what was going to happen in the future. This verse plays into that. God makes a promise regarding it. Look at it. It's beautiful. Verse 5. Trust in the Lord. Trust in Yahweh. That's from the heart. That's internally. Trust in the Lord. How much? With all your heart. Totally, completely trust in Him. And you got to keep going back to that. I do. You trust in God for 10 minutes and boom, all of a sudden you're not trusting God anymore. That's us as humans. That's why it's present tense. Ongoing. Command. Keep doing it. Keep trusting. And then when you stop trusting, start trusting again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, your entire being, completely. He is your priority in life. If God is not your priority in life, if Jesus isn't your priority, you're not going to be able to fulfill this. If you have greater desires and aspirations outside of pleasing Jesus Christ, you're not going to fulfill this, and you're not going to get the promise that goes with it. Look at the promise. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. That's our pride, our short-sightedness, our ignorance, our wrong information, our deception, our fallen mind, the way we think. It is corrupt. It is off base. Even when we're believers, in all your ways, as a result, because we think that way, in all your ways, in all you do, all your aspirations, all your plans, all your goals, plans of the day... Every area of life, acknowledge God. God, help me. Lord Jesus, help me. God, give me insight. God, give me wisdom. And a lot of times, God will give you wisdom through another person. And sometimes that wisdom, you won't like it. Well, I thought you prayed, God, give me wisdom. God answers it by sending you the person with wisdom, and you don't want anything to do with it. Or me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Yahweh. For us, that is Jesus Christ, the triune God. And if you do, here's the promise, verse 6, and he will make your paths straight. You know, literally, Hebrew, the Hebrew, here's what the Hebrew says. He will make your paths smooth. He will clear a highway for you to travel on. He's going to get all the impediments and roadblocks out of your way. So there's a twofold blessing there. Number one, say you're going through the jungle and all you see in front of you and you're taking a safari or a walk or a hike and all you see in front of you six inches away are just a bunch of branches. And then the guide goes before you and he's got a machete and he just starts hacking away for you about 12 inches at a time. What is he doing? He's making a path for you. He's making it smooth so you can walk so you're not tripping over stuff. With branches flying in your face, so that's a benefit. And all the while he's also providing direction for which way you should go. This is like a twofold promise, right here. Literally, commentators were split. This is a promise that God is gonna make your life smoother. Uh-oh. This is a promise that God will make your life easier. Uh-oh. Can I say that? There you go again, Pastor Cliff. Are you one of those health and wealth prosperity teachers? No, but that's what the verse says. If you trust the Lord in all areas of life, it literally says God will smooth your path in life. And again, that has to be in contrast with the rest of the book of Proverbs that if you're living like the devil, you are going to bring natural consequences into your own life, and your life is going to be difficult because you made it difficult through your dumb decisions, your lack of wisdom, your love for sin. And you can see that with people who don't know God, don't want to live the Christian life, and they are just living recklessly, kamikaze, out of control. And they're whining about all their problems like, well, I'll tell you, if you want advice, I'll tell you why you got a lot of problems. It's the way you're living, you're bringing this on yourself. This is not God having to do anything to intervene supernaturally or in a special way to make your life complicated. You're doing it to yourself, Through natural consequences. There are natural consequences. That's what he's talking about. So, am I saying that life is easy? No. Don't come up after the service and say, Pastor Cliff, did you say life was easy? (laughs) No. That is not what I'm saying, and that's not what this verse means. Life is hard, life is very difficult. But if you love God, acknowledge him in all your ways, he gives you a beautiful promise, child of God. And that is he's going to smooth a path for you as you walk by faith in life. Walk by faith, not by sight. Following him. And you're not going to get snared up in natural consequences that would take you down and make life more miserable if you lived a life of compromised sin. That's what it means. So there's a the balance. Next one. Uh, Seven and eight, which is number three, your attitude toward the world don't compromise towards this sinful world. Seven and eight, do not be wise in your own eyes. Don't have self don't be overconfident about yourself. This is pride. We're all vulnerable. So don't try to live life in your own eyes according to your own way, your own agenda. Oh I can do it. That's the attitude. No, I can do it oh I got this no you don't. Oh, I got this. No, I don't. Do not be wise in your own eyes as you live in the world, but rather fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So those two verses go together. That's what he means. We aren't going to make it through this jungle of a life without leaning on God and avoiding evil. It's everywhere. Every step we take. It's like a landmine living in this world of evil. It's easy to be entrapped and ensnared by evil because it's everywhere. We need God's help. Rather, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to hate evil. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to hate sin. And God's the one that defines sin. God tells us what sin is. God says, I hate this. And then he wrote it down in the Bible. Well, what does God think about this? He hates it. How do we know? Because that's what he said. That's what he thinks. I need to fear God, and I need to turn away from evil. I need to hate what God hates. I need to love what God loves. God hates The shedding of innocent blood. That's a Bible verse. Where's that today? Uh, Abortion. Slaughtering an innocent baby. That's the shedding of innocent blood. What does God think of that? He hates it. It's evil. It's wicked. There will be consequences for those who participate in it. We should hate it too. Just one example. And there are many more. God defines it for us. Well, if you do live your life as a Christian, hating sin, hating evil, evil hating compromise, hating the humor of the world, the entertainment of the world, when it's an offense to God and you live a life with a sensitive conscience towards all that garbage, there's a promise for you, Christian, and that is in verse 8. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. This is beautiful Hebrew poetry because in that couplet, the two verses, it's a complement. One is internal, one is external, and it's referring to the all of humanity. Your entire being will have spiritual health from God. That's what that means. It will be healing to your body. It will be healing to your navel. It will be healing to that which is external to you. The most identifiable thing when you came into the world, your umbilical cord, your navel. That's how graphic this is. But it's talking about the physical body. It will be literally physical healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. That's on the inside. So on the inside and the outside, you will have healing. Literally the words here, refreshment there in the second part of the verse is you will be irrigated. You will be watered. You will be replenished. You will be reinvigorated. You will be given life. Water is the source of life. That's what it means. And you'll have life from God on a supernatural spiritual level. That is a promise. Count on it. Your soul and and your physical body will literally be affected by your spiritual condition. Read the Psalms. Read Psalm 32, Psalm 51. David, when he was in sin, in compromise, he said while he was compromised for month after month after month, lying about murder, lying about adultery, he was just withering away literally as a human being, and it affected his physiology, his biology. He couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep, and literally his countenance was just withering away. So yes, our physical health and body is affected by our spirituality and our sin. They go together. God made us physical beings as well as spiritual beings. And they are integrated, inseparable. So that's the promise. Healing and refreshment. There you go again, Pastor Cliff. Promising healing. Am I promising physical healing here? Um, are you one of those health and wealth uh, prosperity uh, preachers, Pastor Clip? No, I'm not. But right here in the Bible, there is a promise that we have to give credence to at some level. In context. Then verse 9, the next promise, and this is regarding your attitude towards your income, which everybody has to deal with. Everybody gets income. Whether you have a job or not, you get income because you're alive. You're here today. You survived. You ate. You have clothes on your body. You have a roof over your head, apparently. So everybody is a beneficiary of income. So from one degree to another, this command affects all of us. Whether you're a 7-year-old, an unemployed high school student, a retired military personnel, all of us. If you're a believer, and that's 9 and 10, honor the Lord from your wealth. Give to God from your income. Give to God from your revenue. Give to God from your, the money you make. That's what it means to honor the Lord from your wealth. Honor the Lord from your wealth. Give to him and from the first of all of your produce. And here's the promise in verse 10. So your barns, if you do, actually most of the English translations at the beginning of verse 10 don't say so. They say Then. That's important because what it means is uh, this will naturally follow. This is a consequence of. If you do this, then, if you do. So it's conditional statement. If you do this, if you honor the Lord regarding your finances, then this will happen. This is another promise. It's amazing. I introduced it last week, and I actually had some people come up and they either sent me emails. I got comments personally, uh, people asking me, "Is that really what you meant?" What, what do you mean? Is that really what I meant?" And then they read the verse. I said, well, yeah, I just, I just read the verse. That's what it says. So, yeah, that's what I meant. So let's read it. Uh, if you honor the Lord with your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so then the result will be that your barns, and this is agricultural context, that's, that was their income, you know, agricultural farming, that's how they get their living, that's their money. You get the grain, you harvest it, you put it in the barn, you either use it or you sell it so you can have other stuff their currency your barns you want full barns you want stuff in your barns if you don't have stuff in your barns you're poor you don't have money you don't have resource Um, honor the Lord so then your barns will be filled they will be filled with plenty jam packed that's what that means and your vats that's what you put wine in that was the main beverage the main drink big old imagine a big old barrel of wine That's how you survived. You had it with dinner. Your vats of wine will overflow with new wine. It will be overflowing. You will have a surplus. You will have an abundance. So here it is. If you honor God with your wealth and your income regularly on a regular basis, uh, always recognizing him as the priority, then God gives you another promise regarding your income and your basic survival in this world. He's going to meet your needs. You don't need to worry about it that's Matthew 6 Jesus saying don't worry don't worry don't worry he said that three times if you're a believer don't worry about the basics and provisions of life your father loves you he knows what you need he will take care of you he will he promises to take care of you not only that he will do it with abundance according to this verse uh, you will have plenty it says and it will overflow flourishing and I would say looking around uh, and knowing our culture and our demographic here in the Silicon Valley and our church, I'd say the majority of us, we know plenty compared to what people knew in Solomon's day, compared to what most people around the world are used to. We have plenty overflowing. So you don't have to be a, health and we- a false health and wealth prosperity teacher to understand this verse or to own this verse we're, we're living in the lap of luxury in light of this verse and god's goodness many of us are not all of us but many of us are he's fulfilling his promises he's keeping his promises so another great promise that's number four your attitude towards income the promise is that uh, you will have comforts of this life not illegitimate ones but comforts of of this life God blessed many saints throughout the Bible, and he blessed them. Some of the ways he blessed them was with money and material. Uh, At the end of Abraham's life, it said God blessed him with all kinds of income. He blessed Job with all kinds of money, income. That was part of his blessing. God gives spiritual blessings, but his blessings aren't only spiritual. And sometimes when we read verses and say, oh, God's going to bless me, the false teaching says that's a material blessing always. That isn't what it means. One of the ways God can bless us is to make you one of those special people that knows the shalom of God deep in your heart, and you know a peace of God like nobody else. You've got, you've got the I know a couple people like that, literally. I know them personally. They are rare, but they have this sweet, beautiful, almost ever present shalom peace of God in their heart, and they just seem like they never uh, sway from that. A mentor that my wife and I had uh, 20, 30 years ago, this wonderful woman of God who was about 70 years old. She was like that. And it wasn't fake. It was real. That That's, like I said, that's worth more than money. It's a rare jewel of a gift from God. Uh, and then finally, uh, 11 and 12. My son or child of God, do not neglect the discipline of the Lord. You're in his family. He's your father. Uh, We make sins. We fall short. Therefore, we deserve spiritual spankings. He will give them to us. He is giving them to us. We need to welcome those. It's corrective. He does it because he loves us. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. And even as a father corrects his son or a daughter in whom he delights. And when you have the discipline of the Lord in your life and you welcome it and embrace it and you grow as a result, then the promise, I think, is that you have confidence in this life. Confidence knowing that he indeed is your Father. So that's an overview of that beautiful proverb. And now let me close by just making a couple observations uh, in light of, a little further on, verses 9 and 10, since we're talking about giving. Practically now, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all of your produce, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Practical takeaways, applications, digging a little deeper of what this verse means. Uh, the first verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, the first part of the verse. Honor the Lord from your wealth. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it's a command. Give. There it is, point number one. Give. If you're a child of God, if you're a believer, you need to give. That is a command. It's right here in the passage. There are no excuses. Exodus 22, 29. Exodus 23, 19. Deuteronomy eighteen four. God commanded everyone in the theocracy to give to give to give regularly from all of your income one of those verses says uh, do not delay in your giving did you know that delayed obedience is almost synonymous with disobedience do not literally do not delay in your giving so give it is a basic command Jesus said in Luke 638 give That's, that's, I'm quoting Jesus. Give. If you're a child of God, you need to give. This is basic to your life. Evaluate yourself. Look at your life. Look at the pattern of your life. The history of your Christian life. And if you evaluated yourself, because Paul says examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. We all need to do that on a regular basis. And if you looked at, okay, what is the pattern of giving in my life? Am I a giving person or am am I a stingy person? And sometimes we're not the best at evaluating ourselves. So maybe you should ask a few people. And if they're honest, they'll tell you. Oh, no, you're giving. Oh, you're kind of hit and miss. Oh, you're inconsistent. You're stingy. Well, we need to hear that. That could be the discipline of the Lord, right, that we are supposed to welcome. Give, it's a command. So when you join this church and become a member, this is one of the basic fundamental commitments you make. When I join this church, I'm going to give to this church. And it's not so much giving to the church, but it's giving what this, it says, Honor the Lord. Give to the Lord. That's who you're giving to. But it's a command. It's a command like any other command in the Bible that we're obligated to do. Give. John, First uh, John chapter three says, if you th- you say that you know God and you know Jesus and you're not a person inclined to be giving on a regular basis, especially to those that you see in need, don't even call yourself a Christian. It's pretty strong language. First John three. Acts chapter 2, verse 43 and 45, that was the model of the, of the church. They all gathered, everybody was saved, they were fired up, it was the early church, they gathered together, they were with the apostles, they heard the apostles' doctrine, and it says everyone was sharing everything they had as everyone had a need. That's not communalism, that's not communism, that's Christians being kind and giving because God is giving meeting the needs of other saints. So this is basic. If you're a Christian, you need to give. Um, Number two, who do we give to? We give to God. Honor the Lord. Honor the Lord from your wealth. So give to him. Honor the Lord. Give to God. How do you give to God today? Well, God has always required his people to give. But throughout history, from the Garden of Eden till today, 6,000 years, one thing that's never changed is God expects his people to give, commands them to give, The one thing that does change with time is the venue by which and the mechanism by which God wants his people to give. In the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel, the giving was direct. Cain and Abel gave to God. They gave of their resources, whether it was an animal sacrifice or a plant sacrifice. That was giving directly to God. We don't do that today. Abraham, same thing. He's giving on an altar. That was giving to God, one way of doing it. In the Mosaic economy of the theocracy, starting in 1400 B.C., all the way up until Jesus' ministry, until the church age in 30 A.D., from 1400 B.C. to 30, what was the venue by which you gave to God and filled this command? You gave to the theocracy of God's people in keeping with the 613 commands of the Mosaic covenant, but you specifically gave to the priests, the Levites. That's who you gave to. That constituted honoring the Lord. That's what Solomon is thinking as he's writing this. Are you giving to the Levites? Why? Because God chose them as the representatives to do the priestly service, to do the ministry of the saints. And they lived on those resources of income from God's people. Then in the church age, it's different, the venue of giving. The way you give to God during the church age is you give it to the leaders of the local church. That's clear in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, the very end of the chapter. Acts chapter 5, verse 2. It says, "...the apostles were all together..." They shared and gave. How did they do it? They did it in a procedural, formal, organized manner. It says they brought their resources, their money, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. Three times it says that. Laid it at the apostles' feet. Gave it to the leaders. Who were the apostles? They were the elders of the church. First Peter 5. Peter said, I am an elder of a church. So how do they give? No longer the theocracy. You give it to the elders of your church. So our members need to be giving on a regular basis from their income to the elders of the church. And then the book of Acts says, it goes on, the elders or the apostles collected the money, counted the money, and they were responsible for distributing the money to every person who had a need. So the shepherds, elders, need to know what's going on with the finances in the local church. All the money that's coming in, how much, what the needs of the saints are, so we can allocate it as God wills with very high accountability. So that's the Christian ethic. You're a born-again Bible-believing Christian. You need to be, belong to a church, affiliate with a church on a regular basis. You need to have a home church, a home base of operations, and you need to be giving and giving regularly. And It needs to, need to start with giving to the leadership of your church. Well, I don't trust my leadership. Then go to another church. Find a church you trust. Find a church with elders and shepherds who are qualified with the 21 qualifications in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 because that's what God expects. It's very clear. So that's how you give to God, through the mechanism of the church. Uh, 1 Peter 3 says that the church is the designated pillar and guardian of the truth on planet earth for God right now. You give to the church. You give to the leaders of the church, the elders of the church, qualified elders of the church. That's what God expects. If you're a member of this church, you need to do it on a regular basis. I'm held to the same accountable standard as anybody other member of this church. And by the way, uh, you give to the leadership of the church, and that's not just to pay my salary, but it's to meet the needs of the ministry here at the church. We have lights on right now and electricity. We have an electric bill once a month. We've got to pay it. We have people on our staff that we have to pay two times a month. Well, I'm one of those Christians. I like to give... uh, Quarterly or once a year. Well, how often do you get paid? Uh, Every other week. Oh. Then you're not fulfilling this verse. This is basic. God said give from the first of all your produce. That means regularly. As often as you get a paycheck, that's how often you should be giving. Uh, Well, the stock market isn't doing so hot right now, so I'm going to wait six months. We'll happen to get paid. Uh, Every other week. Well, no, then you're not waiting for six. That isn't what God, You're violating what God is saying with the first, of all of your income on a regular basis. Just like in the book of Acts. Because they took that money and they had to distribute the money and pay bills and meet needs so people can survive. And that's how it was in the Old Testament too. That's why God said, don't delay in your expected, obligated giving. Because the Levites will suffer. God is mocked. You're forgetting me. Don't forget me. That's that's all throughout the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. God keeps talking about giving and his people. Don't forget about giving. Don't forget me. Deuteronomy chapter 8, 11 through 20, specifically. God reminds them, the entire congregation. Do not forget me. Do not forget the grace that I gave to you. Do not forget how I set you free from Egypt. Specifically, don't forget me. And I will monitor that as a barometer by your giving. Don't do that give regularly and when you do give you are being reminded that god is gracious he met all your needs it's, it's an act of thanking god giving is do you know that giving is an act of worship it's one of the most tangible concrete acts of worship you could possibly do is giving giving is an act of worship to god think of it that way not oh i don't have enough money to do what i want to do and go on vacation oh it's cutting into my savings Oh, it's what, that's just completely wrong thinking. Giving is giving to God as an act of worship. Matthew 2, 11. The magi came. They saw the child. It says they bowed down and worshipped him, opened up their treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Giving is an act of worship to God. It's an act of thanking God for his provision. You can't, I'll check. This is what my pastor challenged me when I was 21 years old. I'll never forget it. He said, Give regularly, give sacrificially, give generously, give abundantly, give bountifully, give with a free hand, give worshipfully. And then at the end, he said, You can't, and, and he gave us a challenge you can't outgive God. There's your challenge. You can't outgive God. Well, I won't have enough money to pay my bill. You can't outgive God. So that's stuck in my brain. Thirty years later, man, he was right. God is faithful. So give. It's command. Give to God through your local church, uh, and then finally, uh, make God and church ministry the priority in terms of your giving. So you can give to other ministries, give to the parachurch ministry, give to this and that. But the church, the local church is your priority. So if you've got seven different things you're giving to, make sure the church is the local priority, not just this church, if you're at a local church. So that's why you need to be a member of a church and not be church hopping. You know, church hoppers, uh, they got a good strategy. I've, I know some church hoppers. How long have you been a Christian? 22 years? What's your home church? Uh, no, I don't have one. Well, what's your last home church? Can we talk about something else? Well, of the 22 years, have you ever had a home church or been a member? Of church? No, I've never been a member of a church. I go to a lot of churches. I get around. I like the saints. I like to be with the, God's people. They're everywhere. God's people are everywhere. God's not just at one church. I go to a lot of churches. Sounds good, doesn't it? But when you're just hopping all over the place, you're not accountable. And guess what? You don't have to give to any of them. I'm going to go to this cool Bible study that this church offers, and use their services, and get all filled up with that good stuff on Wednesday nights. And then on Sunday, I'm going to go to this church uh, on the second week of the month because they have a cool fellowship meal, and I don't have to bring any food as a guest. And man, I get dessert too extras, two desserts. <laughs> and this Bible, this church over here, they offer this thing for professionals. And this church offers, and you can just make the circuit. Real Christians do this. I'm not making this up. This is very displeasing to God. We'll be held accountable. We'll be held accountable for that kind of stuff. So make church your priority. If you got missions in the parachurch organization and the Samaritans with Franklin Graham and you got some other commitment and Compassion International, and your local church, Christian school, everybody's asking for money and everybody needs money. That's true. So we need to be prioritized. General church giving comes first. If you're a member of this church, we need to pay our bills. We need to pay our staff. If you get paid once a month, you can't say, I'm going to give once a year at the end of the year. That's disobedient. That is unacceptable. By the way, thank you to the many wonderful, faithful, regular, generous givers that we have that are members of our church. We even have actually people who aren't members who are generous givers to our church. Thank you, too. That blesses our soul. If you're getting a little queasy and uncomfortable, that's okay. I'm just talking out of the Bible about hard stuff. Got to have family talk. We, uh, the elders, have been monitoring our finances, the current group, for 15 years. And in hindsight, God has been very gracious. He has always provided for us. We've never really had a need, desperation. Amazingly, we lay the budget before him every year and he's met the budget every year. And how does he do that? With God's people. So our people have been very responsible and generous. But at our church, because we take membership seriously, we expect 100% of our members to give on a regular basis based on their income. So if you don't have income, then you're in a special category. But if you're a member and you have an income, and I'm talking a regular paycheck, a retirement check, a gift you get from somebody, how about your IRS money that you get back in the positive? How about what you get from your investments? You know, people come up and ask that. Well, uh, is, do I give before taxes or after taxes? It's like, really, are you that hung up? Seriously? This is supposed to be an act of worship, giving freely to God. I guess it's a matter of how much do you want to be blessed by God, the giver of all things. Deuteronomy 8, that says he is the one who, who gives us the ability to make wealth. Really? Are we at that level? Are we that crass? Shouldn't be. It's an act of worship. Give regularly. And then finally... Um, Number four, I guess will give you, give and, yeah, I have to end this, this one because it's a good one. This will get you out of the dumps and all that guilt I just laid on you. Uh, number four, give and God will give to you. Can I get an amen? Yes. Give and God will give to you. He will bless you. Let me just give you some verses. Proverbs eleven twenty five. 25. If you're stingy, God won't bless you. Luke 6, 38. Jesus said, if you give, that's a command. And if you give generously to God. Read that, Luke six thirty eight, and then Jesus goes on with all these adjectives describing of how abundantly gracious God is going to bless you in return. Jesus said that you will have an abundance. Galatians six six through ten. What you sow, you will reap. If you're stingy when you sow, you I mean yeah, then you will reap in return from God. If you're gracious and bountiful in what you sow in giving. God will bless that. That's his promise. It is more blessed to give than receive. That's what Jesus said. And then finally, second, this is the coup de grace. You actually need to read on your own. Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, the whole two chapters, the most exhaustive, detailed theology and philosophy about giving in the Bible. But basically, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 9, God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a hilarious Giver, God loves a generous giver. And he's talking to church people. Don't be stingy. So this is just, I mean, we could do several more sermons on this, but we we, we don't need to. Those are the priorities. So let me close with this list of what, if you take the whole Bible and all the theology on giving and money, This is theology in a nutshell of your giving that should be routine and a part of your worldview as a believer regarding giving. What does God want from us? He wants giving that is prioritized, that's to the local church, regular, as frequently as you get income, generous, sacrificially, wise, as a good steward. Free, that means no regrets. You give freely. And then finally, in a worshipful manner. That's the best one. It's an act of worship. Well, thanks for tuning in. And I can tell you're paying attention because I can see you're all like really serious and looking at me and who I don't know what you're thinking. But that's good. We need to talk about this. I'm expecting... Uh, God to bless many. Keep on blessing you. Many of you have stories of how actually somebody sent me this week a list. They delineated a blessing of things God has blessed them with over the years in light of the promise of Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. That was really cool. I'm with you, Pastor Cliff. God has blessed me in the following ways. Boom. He keeps his promises. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together and Um, An opportunity to meet with the family of God and uh, talk about important matters, sensitive matters, for some, uncomfortable matters, money, giving, Um, but you you know us, you know everything about us. We can't hide anything from you, so we want to conform everything about our lives in conformity with what you expect God, thank you for these promises in this passage. This reminds us that living a life that pleases you is actually doable with your help. And that we can enjoy the blessings of life. That's what your word says. You give us all things to enjoy. To live a fulfilled life, a satisfying life. So we thank you for that great privilege. It only comes through knowing Jesus Christ. We know that. And we commit all these things to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.